Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Let's jump right into today's program. Conspiracy, a secret plan or agreement to carry out an illegal or harmful act. Here's James Collins to discuss the modern day conspiracy that is right in front of us. Dennis Cuddy is a historian and political analyst. He received his PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Cuddy has taught at the university level and has been a political and economic risk analyst for an international consulting firm. He has also been a senior associate with the United States Department of Education. Dr. Cuddy has also testified before members of Congress on behalf of the U.S. Department of Justice. He has written or edited 20 books, and he has written hundreds of articles that have appeared in newspapers all around the nation, including the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and USA Today. Dr. Cuddy is a longtime friend of our ministry, and he's back today to talk about his book titled Conspiracy. Dr. Cuddy, welcome back. I'm excited to have you join me today to talk about conspiracy. This book is different from most of your other books, isn't it? This book is a little different than my previous books that you've published there. And what I do usually is identify who did something or who said something or what happened. Oftentimes in a chronological manner, I I would say Cecil Rhodes, for example, who's on the cover of this current book, formed a secret society, the Society of the Elect, and he said, quote, fancy the charm to young America to participate in a scheme to take the government of the whole world. And so I, I usually say who did something, who said something, what happened. This book does a little of that, but it's mainly a how book, how they're doing this. And feigning incompetence, pretending incompetence is one way in which they do it. In Conspiracy, you reveal groundbreaking information about the government's prior knowledge of 9-11. Would you explain what you mean by 9-11 prior knowledge? I try to use information that's credible and little known. For example, the prior knowledge is not to say that George W. Bush conducted this operation, but they certainly had knowledge that could have led to an easy prevention. For example... On August 6th, President Bush was given an internal briefing document that was titled, Osama bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S. or inside the U.S. Now, they thought the attack was originally probably going to be somewhere else in Europe, but they at least knew in advance that it might be. And earlier in that summer, they had information that had been published about Project Bojinka And that was a project, a plan by the terrorists, as we later found out, to hijack planes and crash them into the World Trade Center and and other prominent buildings, including the Transamerica building. They didn't choose that one ultimately, but in several major buildings. So the idea is, if you're Condoleezza Rice and you're in charge of national security, she kept saying, well, we didn't have actionable intelligence. Well, that's not the job of a national security advisor. The national security advisor is supposed to anticipate possibilities and develop contingency plans. And so even if uh, one of your listeners had been National Security Advisor, once they learned of this information about a possible attack in the U.S., you would have sat there with a number of consultants working for you, and you'd say, well, where might they attack? And immediately the World Trade Center would have come to mind because they'd already tried to blow that up back in 1993. 
And then you would have said, okay, how do we prevent various attacks? What if it's a sarin gas attack? What if it's a truck bomb? And at some point you would have said, well, what if it's an air attack? And somebody would have said, well, you know, what kind of? We don't know. And so you would develop a contingency for any kind of air attack. And the simple answer would be an Apache Longbow helicopter. There's at least three forts in the New York City area, and at least one or two of them have these uh, Apache Longbow helicopters, which have 30-millimeter chain guns. They have rockets, and they have a missile. And you wouldn't need to actually put that uh, helicopter by the World Trade Center or have it flying around all the time. You just have it on standby alert. So if anything peculiar was going on, as it was that morning, uh, they knew in advance of the planes hitting. There were certain things that might be ominous, you know, lack of communication with certain planes and so on. You would just pick up the phone and say, send up the Apache. And it would have taken only a couple of minutes for that to be right there next to the buildings. And as the planes were coming at it, it had been the simplest thing in the world to knock them out of the sky with the rockets and the missile. And they would say, oh, well, you would just kill those people. Well, in the first place, those people are going to die anyway, unfortunately. And if a plane going 500 miles an hour is headed right for the World Trade Center and you're there and your helicopter, chances are really big that they're not just a bunch of tourists off track. You know, and so, yes, it would have amounted to killing those people, but you would also have been saving the lives of 3,000 people. So, you know, these are difficult decisions, but still, the attacks could have easily been prevented. That's one way. Now, about the foreknowledge, what I try to do that's different than most boast riders is most people say, well, Willie Brown, the mayor of San Francisco, is flying to New York City that morning. It was a Tuesday morning, flying to New York City that morning. And he got a late-night warning about his flight. And so Willie Brown comes on and says, well, yeah, I got a warning. But everybody assumed it was one of these general FAA warnings that they put out fairly frequently. And then that story just went away. Well, what I did, unlike others, is I filed a Freedom of Information request with the FAA, and they wrote back that there was no general warning for at least two weeks before 9-11. So he had to get some special information. So the question should have been, who did he talk to? Who actually called him? And how did they have this information? And so what I do is I take it another step, another step forward. And so I saw in Newsweek magazine that a reporter named Hosenball on, I think it was the day after 9-11, had a column in Newsweek, and it was a very brief little item, and it said top Pentagon officials had suddenly canceled their travel plans the morning of 9-11, and that was it. And so I called him up. I asked him some questions, and very quickly he started to get very sort of scared. He said, I I don't want to talk about it. I I can't. I'm not going to talk about this anymore. And so that was it. And so I called up his editor, Evan Thomas, who was editor of Newsweek for the Washington area, and he said, well, what did Hosenball say? Like, you know, he was wondering what he had spilled. And I said, well, he just, you know, said, I can't talk about it. And he starts laughing. Evan Thomas, uh, head of Newsweek, just starts laughing. And I said, oh, really? Like that. And then, sure enough, about nine days later, they come out with the same information, similar. Now, I'm thinking that if you're the Pentagon and you see in Newsweek that five or several of your top officials has canceled their plans, you're going to think you might be under a, a microscope on this thing. And so if it's false, if it's false, Immediately when Hosenball's story appeared, you would call up and say, what are you guys doing? No top Pentagon officials canceled their uh, travel plans. We want a retraction. So obviously, nine days later, if they're still printing the same uh, information, it means it's correct. 
So I call up and I find out under another Freedom of Information request that there were five top Pentagon officials who suddenly canceled their travel plans. So I'm trying to figure out who. So what I find out is that the Pakistani head of ISI, which is their equivalent of the CIA, had three months before 9-11 been to Washington, and then suddenly, two weeks before 9-11, he comes back. His name is General Mahmoud Ahmad. And General Mahmoud Ahmad had $100,000 a month before 9-11 wired to Mohammed Atta, the ringleader of 9-11. So here he is suddenly showing up, and these guys suddenly canceled their travel plans for that morning. Isn't it true that there is a high likelihood that terrorists have nuclear weapons already hidden in the United States? Well, yes and no in a sense of exactly what they have. It's very much like what we were talking about before we came on in the Cuban Missile Crisis. A lot of people look at that and what they do is they miss the sort of obvious question on the Cuban Missile Crisis and then we'll get to the bombs here. What they don't say is, well, why, why would the Soviets want missiles there? Why would they want to take a chance of a confrontation in a third world war with the United States by putting intercontinental ballistic missiles in Cuba? People don't ask that question. The obvious answer is they didn't need them there. They had nuclear-armed submarines sitting seven miles off the coast of Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., Miami, New Orleans, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and in the blink of an eye, those cities would be gone. What are you taking a big risk on putting an intercontinental ballistic missile in Cuba 90 miles away from the homeland? What, so you can reach Detroit? I mean, who? <laughs> was that so important when you could already obliterate all of the main coastal cities in the country? Well, of course not. So that's the type of question I ask myself, and there has to be more to it. So in terms of the bombs here, they don't actually need, you know, a 30 trillion kiloton bomb on a missile sent from Iran. You know, they keep looking at the intercontinental ballistic missiles of Iran and say, when will they get it and all this sort of stuff. In fact, what, what I've said is more likely is something that we, we used to call a dirty bomb. In other words, it doesn't have to be a huge bomb that would, you know, wipe out the entire Northeast. You could simply have a dirty bomb with radioactive material already here and almost anywhere. And so the question then is, well, if they've got it here, why, you know, why are they not using it? And there seems to be only one logical answer. That is that these jihadists, so-called jihadists, are directed from above because it's that feigning incompetence sort of thing. The movement behind these people can't be as incompetent as they seem to be. What do you mean that the terrorists are not as incompetent as they seem to be? Could you give an example? Early on in the jihadist activities, we kept hitting them, whether it was drones, air attacks, or whatever, because we located them because they would use cell phones. Now, any teenager can tell you how a cell phone works. You don't have to get a tap, you know, like a landline. The cell phone goes up to the satellite in the sky and then is beamed down to, you know, Austin, Texas or Brussels or <laughs> wherever in Europe. And so obviously these things are easily intercepted and you can target them. So the fact that certain things haven't happened means that these actual jihadists really cannot be in control ultimately of what's going on. So the same thing would apply to, for example, a dirty bomb in New York. And I've mentioned in the past how 
in the book of Revelation, where it's talking about, you know, they, they will see in the ships of the sea, and you'll watch the burning of the city, and it will be within an hour, and so forth and so on. It seems to indicate that this is one of the things that could happen to New York City in fulfillment of the book of Revelation. What I do is I ask those sorts of questions, like when I have in this book, I ask, how could this, just three months before our Declaration of Independence, just three months, how could this renegade Jesuit priest all of a sudden have this vast network. I mean, it's not like he could pick up a cell phone and call all of these people all over the place who are active in the Illuminati's activities, moving out of Bavaria into Switzerland and to France and to Russia and all that. I mean, back then, you know, you had a little horse and buggy or a little carriage or something. You'd ride a horse. There wasn't instantaneous communication. So my thinking is that whole thing also was controlled by the power elite. It wasn't just a certain priest who decided, you know, one day sitting around, you know, looking up at the birds or something that he formed this massive secret society with all of his capabilities and take over the world. This is James Collins, and my guest today is Dr. Dennis Cuddy. We're talking about his book, Conspiracy. You can order a copy of this eye-opening book now by calling 1-800-652-1144 or you can always order online at swrc.com. Dr. Cuddy, tell me, just who exactly are the power elite, and what is their plan? The power elite's been around for a long, long time, and I think they're pretty much in control of these jihadists. And so we give examples. You know, there's a fellow uh, we mentioned before, Gulen and his schools, and then Jelani uh, also, and, and how they've been heavily involved in various nations in Turkey and Iran and so forth and so on. And so what people do today is they look at the situation as it is. You know, okay, look at Iran as it is. What I do is try to say, no, 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 you, you can't just look at the uh, nation as it is. What happened leading up to this? And that's what they don't want you to do in the schools. They want to wipe out history, and they want to, as Orwell said in his book 1984, when Winston, the hero, is being tortured by Big Brother's agent, whose name was O'Brien, Winston said, we will never succumb to Big Brother. And O'Brien says, well, what if we quicken the tempo of human life? And so that's what they did in the 1950s and 60s. You know, I got to go here. I got to pick up Johnny. I got to go take Susie to ballet. I got to get to the grocery store. I go, 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 go. Now, what happens if you do that, and you'll say, okay, so they quicken the temper of human life. But what you have to understand is the psychological effect, and that's the type of thing I go into in this book, Conspiracy. When you look at that, when you quicken the temper of human life, you force individuals or coerce individuals to think in terms of now. You know, I've got so much to do now, I can't think about the past, it's unimportant, it's already happened, it's dead old white men, and I haven't got time to think about the future, it's uncertain, who knows. And so what you do is you almost start to act like an animal, which is what they want. You also write about a conspiracy concerning the Vietnam War. How was there a conspiracy in Vietnam? For example, the primary activity by the the communists within South Vietnam was the Viet Cong, and they were supplied by the North Vietnamese. There's various generals in the past have been quoted as saying an army runs on its stomach, more so even than the weapons, because if you don't have food, then it doesn't matter what kind of weapons you got. Very important in terms of the supply of the Viet Cong, which went down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, as it was, that scooted around through Laos and Cambodia, were these basic trucks. And the trucks were produced largely at the Kama River Truck Factory in the Soviet Union, and it was a Ford factory, Ford trucks. 
So without Ford, the Viet Cong would not have been able to sustain its revolution against the South Vietnamese and win. And it's typical of the same thing that happened in World War II, the same sort of thing with ITT and other major American companies. If it weren't for their supplies and support, DuPont and so forth, the Nazis never would have attained the military might that they did. We supplied the chemicals both to Iran and to Iraq that they used to make their own chemical weapons and fight each other. Oftentimes, you'll find that armament dealers make a fortune whenever there's a war. How historically has the power elite manipulated the public, and do they still do that today? There are various groups, Skull and Bones, Fabian Socialists, and so forth, but one of them is Cecil Rhodes' group. His secret society was called the Society of the Elect. He worked with J.P. Morgan, and what happened was J.P. Morgan wanted to control the flow of information, and Cecil Rhodes wanted that as well. He wanted his people to primarily, including Rhodes Scholars, penetrate four areas, education, economic, political, and journalism. And so what they wanted to do in that case, the latter case, was J.P. Morgan would buy up about 300 newspapers, but then they figured they didn't really have to do that in this country. They would just buy, say, the top 25 major papers because the others got their information from them. And so after six decades, Cecil Rhodes said his conspiracy would end as such as a conspiracy because he'd have about 3,000 people in key positions all over the place, and he wouldn't need it. They would just be transformed into a network of like-minded globalists. So, for example, in the school shooting some years ago in Pearl, Mississippi, and Jonesboro, Arkansas, what you found is that when the newspapers, there were about 900 newspaper reports, and only nine of the 900 actually said what happened, and that was that the student shooter was stopped by a staff member at the school going out to his car or his truck, getting a gun, coming back and pointing it at the youngster and saying, put the gun down or I'll shoot you. Only nine papers. The others totally omitted that. So the point is, the parallel under this strategy does not have to call up 900 people. It doesn't have to do that. Because if you control the flow of information from, say, the top 25, then you don't have to call up people. You, you automatically have publishers and then editors and then assistant editors and then reporters in place who are going to be of that same viewpoint. And so what they do is they keep pounding and pounding and pounding with these examples. You write that there is a conspiracy to reduce guns in America. You also write that there is a conspiracy by the media to not report stories about people who defend themselves with guns. Would you elaborate on that? When you exercise more gun control, it's not that you're banning guns in happy town, USA, where there's never any crime. If you ban something, it's banned everywhere, including in a ghetto in Chicago where you've got a man and a wife and three female daughters, and they're surrounded by, you know, 10 gang members from a drug cartel with AK-47s, and you want to limit him to one clip before his gun? What is he supposed to say? Okay, guys, before you come in here and kill me and rape my wife and daughters and steal everything, uh, wait just a minute and let me put another clip in. It's totally ludicrous to do that. So in the state I am, just before this latest act of gun violence, the national media doesn't report this, but, you know, just east of me, there was a man, and he was in his house with his family, his wife, and children. Three guys come in, and they're going to do bad stuff. They're probably going to kill him and rob him and rape him, okay? But he has a gun, and he fights and shoots one of them, and the others go fleeing. Now, the national media is not going to report that, but it happened. And so you have time after time after time after time 
where horrible, horrible crimes are prevented, prevented through our Second Amendment rights. When we talk about the Second Amendment, we are really talking about the right of the individual, not the militia, correct? You have to understand that the Constitution was originally rejected by the American people. Most people don't know that. It was originally rejected. And so what they did is they came back and added the Bill of Rights. And the Bill of Rights starts, you know, with the First Amendment, freedom of religion and freedom of speech and assembly and in the press and so forth. And it goes on through habeas corpus and the right of search and seizure and so forth and so on. And then it ends with the Tenth Amendment. And the Tenth Amendment specifically states that unless the Constitution designates something specifically for the federal government to do or not do, all other rights are reserved to the individual and the states. The individual and the states. And that's because uh, at the founding of the country, we had had enough of this centralized control by kings and queens and, and so forth. So they did not want a strong national or federal government. And therefore, obviously, when you get to the Second Amendment, it, it applies to an individual, an individual, or the states, but an individual. And the assumption is, well, it was just talking about militia. Well, I can guarantee you the founding fathers didn't have all of their guns stuck at some armories. You know, the, the assumption was this was an individual armed nation. You had an individual right to bear these arms. You might act as a militia, but you had the armament yourself, personally. Tell us how the power elite worked to influence the culture, especially the music culture. This book is mainly a how, how the power elite manipulates us through crises or a dialectical process or through wars or through debt or planned incompetence or whatever, through art. Yeah, this is what happened. You, you would find out that they wanted to change the values of the country. Antonio Gramsci wanted to attack the culture. He was a, sort of a communist theoretician. And he says, instead of all these bloody revolutions, let's just take over the culture. And so you started to see in the, the roaring 20s, as it was called, songs like Anything Goes. You know, you start conditioning it, getting the people to the lively beat to do that. And then in the next uh, decade, the 30s, you would have the Frankfurt School and Theodore Adorno coming up with a theory that said we will have fractious music. Instead of a nice melody like a poem set to music, very calm, romantic, or meaningful, you would have this sort of fractious music to energize people people, uh, maybe get them a little angry, a little little agitated, you know, the beat, emphasize the beat, and so forth and so on. So by the time you got to the 1950s and Alan Freed came up with the term rock and roll, it actually had sexual connotations to it. So by the time you reached the 60s and what you call rock music started, you had groups like The Who, The Jefferson Airplane, The Mothers of Invention actually coming out and saying that they wanted to create a generation gap. They wanted to have a revolution in values. They wanted to separate the youngsters from the values of their parents. And so by the, the 70s, this was so pervasive that you would have an old-fashioned traditional singer like Perry Como coming out with a song that's titled It's Impossible, where he literally is saying, I would sell my very soul and not regret it, which harkened back to Mephistopheles. I mean, think about that. Here's an old-fashioned man, generally considered somewhat traditional religious man, talking about I will sell my soul and not regret it? I mean, what kind of message is that? And then you have the Rolling Stones, who were popular beginning in the 60s and are even popular now, and they're not stupid. Mick Jagger went to the London School of Economics. They know exactly what they're doing, and they became known as Satan's Jesters in their Satanic Majesty's Request albums. And then you would have popular movies and TV shows like MASH. And I remember in the 1980s, there was a large increase in suicides among teens. 
and it reported that in the Washington Post. So I sent them back a letter to the editor uh, about their chart showing the increase. I said, are you surprised? Because I found out in schools all over the country, in elementary schools, they were teaching the, the elementary kids uh, the theme song from MASH. Now, everybody probably knows, da-da-da-da-da, but what you don't know is the children were singing the lyrics, and the title of the song is Suicide is Painless. And it says, cheating is the only way to win, the game of life is lost anyway, and suicide is painless. I mean, once you pound that into elementary school, Joe, what, what do you expect? You're going to expect the teens to start committing suicide. Not only do you write about music and conspiracy, but you also write about television. What role does television play? Television and movies, what you do, again, is an assault on the values. And so you put, like, James Bond movies that appeared in the 1960s, and you have the adventure, you know, and fighting the bad guys, the specter and the, and the Soviets and so forth. But on the side, you slip in illicit sex. You know, he's jumping in bed with all of these, you know, committing fornication all over the place. And so it's not just the what happens. As I said, this particular book deals with the how. And so what you would do is you would have, like in the 1980s, you would have a lot of people from MTV who would go into commercial advertising. And so it used to be what you would have is a person would appear and say, here are the five reasons to buy Nike or drink Pepsi or whatever. And it would appear to your logic, to your mental ability, to your analysis, to your thinking. But what they wanted to do as they were reducing you to this mindless subhumanity I've mentioned before is they switched everything, including education, from the reading, writing, and, you know, the basics to an emotional, affective domain. And in case you think this is some theory I have, no, 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 I quote. I quote Catherine Barrett, the president of the NEA in 1973, saying by the year 2000, they want to get the basics down to just one quarter of the school day so they can become philosophical change agents. And so they would appeal to emotion. So they would just show happy young people drinking Pepsi, and you're supposed to make an, an association there. Let's talk about politics for a minute. In Conspiracy, you explain that with very few exceptions, there is really no difference in the political parties in America and that elections are decided well in advance. That's right, and I carry it way back. About 100 years ago, I say, until in 1912 and 1916 and 1920 and 24, continuing on up. There are designated winners, designated losers. The election of 1992 was very similar to the election of 1912, in which George H.W. Bush had to lose, and he did because he's an agent of the paralyte. Uh, the reason, they had enough Republican votes to pass GATT and NAFTA, but they needed enough Democrat votes, and only a Democratic president like Bill Clinton could twist enough arms. And when George W. Bush runs against John Kerry in 2004, they're both Skull and Bones members. Kerry probably won the election if he had challenged the vote in Ohio because there were more people voting than it would register to vote. But being a good agent of the paralyte and a fellow Skull and Bones member, he didn't challenge it, and so George W. Bush wins and so on. And then when a lot of the Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity gurus said President Obama would not be reelected, I said yes, he would be because he was part of this very, very important power uh, elites plan moving us toward a world socialist government, and each nation has to become socialist first, including ours, and that's where he's moving us, and that's what the word Nazi means, national socialism. So it's very important to the secret Nazi plan that President Obama be reelected. Dr. Dennis Cuddy, thanks for joining me today on Watchmen on the Wall. Today we're featuring three of Dennis Cuddy's books, Conspiracy, Road to Socialism and the New World Order, 
and mental health, education, and social control. Order this outstanding collection today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Please remember, when you purchase a book or DVD from Watchmen on the Wall, you're supporting the global outreach of this ministry. Thank you. Tomorrow, we track the approaching tribulation storm with Terry James. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily Watchmen on the Wall podcast. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.